I want to just confess my curiosity about how you respond to the title of this series we're beginning today. I'm curious about what may build up inside of you, what kicks up emotionally or otherwise in response to this idea of designing your life. I'm going to guess that for some of us, the response is the way we typically feel when we are confronted with uh, what sounds patently like another self-improvement program. Some of us are going, oh no, not another one of those. Uh, I'd be better if it was called resigning my life because I've got enough going on already. I don't need more complication. I'm just tired even thinking about the idea of trying to design it in some way. Then there are others of us, I imagine, whose response is quite different. Our response is to feel sort of our ambition juices flowing. We're excited about the idea of designing our life. Rah, we're thinking to ourselves, the church is going to help me really get organized, really chase my dreams. Well, whichever end of that particular spectrum you may find yourself leaning towards, let me just tell you, that's not where we're going. This is not going to be one of those just do it or find your bliss kind of conversations. Uh, this is going to be a, a different kind of discussion altogether. Now, it's not to say that there won't be something that's required of us, that there won't be some personal action involved in this. I think most of us are probably mature enough to have recognized that if we don't make certain choices in life, life just carries us along. The river flows and we're swept along. We wind up places we never wanted to be. We sometimes become people we never wanted to be. So it's important to make choices. I've given you even a cover quote on the bulletin today that reminds us of that reality. But, but the proposition I want to throw out to you today is a novel one, perhaps, for some of us, and that is this. What if it doesn't actually really depend mainly on us? What if it isn't, in the end, just about or primarily about our effort? What if there is actually a God, not just a good idea in heaven, but a God who is Lord over the universe, who is sovereign over his creation, who is truly the master of what he has made? What if this idea that the great reformers constantly advanced uh, of a God who is ultimately the great actor and mover of history, what if this is true? Uh, what if God is the ultimate designer? You can't read the Bible closely and not be struck by how often it tries to tell us that. The Bible is just jam-packed with images of God as this ultimate designer. He's variously depicted as an architect, as a gardener, as a potter, a refiner of silver, a textile craftsman, a carpenter, an engineer, a stone worker, and a cosmic painter, just to name a few of the ways he designs things. And the reason that it gets presented in so many different colors and hues and varieties is because the Bible is trying to make an extremely emphatic point to us. It's trying to, to remind us that it is not ultimately about us and about what we do. I know the plans I have for you, says God through the prophet Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. In other words, I know the blueprint. 
I know the blueprint that I have for you and for this creation. And I am at work already drawing up and out of it that which I purpose. And so, in other words, when I'm white-knuckled over my kids' college admission plans, anybody get white-knuckled about that? Yeah, some of us have been there or are going there. Or when I'm really anxious about my family plans or the church's strategic plans or my financial plans or my health and my retirement plans. How many of us feel that tension over uh, all that we have to do, all that we have to plan for and put in motion and figure out? In these moments, we need to remember the wisdom that Solomon articulated as follows. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's okay to plan. It's okay to, to, to intentionally picture possibilities. More about that in the future. But ultimately, it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. God is always at work for good. God is always at work. In fact, you know the Sabbath begins with nighttime. Do you know that? If you go back and read Genesis chapter uh, 1, it was evening, it was morning the first day. Why are we told that? It's because even while we're fast asleep, God's working. He's working for good. And our job mainly in this life is to spot him at work and to join him there, as Henry Blackaby is fond of saying. Our main job is to try and figure out what he's doing and to cooperate with that, to cooperate with that. So, so how does that work? How does God actually operate to design life, our lives, and how do we cooperate more fully with him in that designing process? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of these next six weeks together. And I want to suggest that there are actually at least six particular ways that God often seems to shape people into the kind of beings he wants them to be and then use those shaped persons for his purposes in his design of wider spheres in this world. Those, those major tools I want to call out in this series are culture, calling, conflict, communion, community, and the commonplace things of life. Over this series, we're going to consider the role that each one of those instruments has in our lives in shaping us and then enabling us to shape others. And we're going to do this as it gets illustrated. We're going to use as a, as a motif for the whole series a study of the life of Moses, how God designed Moses and then used Moses as a result of that design. Okay, are you with me so far? Have you gone to sleep or you're quitting? You're, you're going back to summer vacation? All right. So the first dimension we're going to look at is the role that culture plays in God's design of our lives. I want to invite you to think of culture as kind of like blueprint paper. Okay? It's kind of like the blueprint out of which a designer draws things up uh, and out for his purpose. Or to use the the metaphor that we get in the text from Exodus chapter 2, think of it as like the blue waters out of which Moses gets drawn up into God's purposes, into the furtherance of his purposes. In this sense, culture is the essential context of your life. Okay, it's the big backdrop. It's the big blue backdrop of your life. That's what culture is. 
In his wonderful book, A Work of Heart, How God Shapes Spiritual Leaders, Reggie McNeil, a friend of this congregation, says that culture is the first major instrument in the development of a leader's heart. That uh, God uses their culture to do the initial shaping that he wants to do in them. Culture creates the backdrop for all of the rest of the storylines, says McNeil. In fact, culture includes all the environmental influences that shape your life. All of the different influences, the historical period you're living in, the family and the traditions that you were born into, the politics, the societal values and the crises of your time all constitute your culture. And the big idea here is that you weren't dropped there by accident. Okay, God's not surprised. Oh no, this is going on in the society. God saw this coming. And, and he dropped you into that set of circumstances to shape you and then to employ you um, in his purpose for that season. Now, Reggie reminds us that culture isn't neutral. It has, uh, contains both positive and negative forces. In other words, there are aspects of your culture that God wants positively to use to make you who you are and what you can be. Right? It's a wonderful time to be alive. There's so many marvelous cultural aspects to the family that you were in and the job situation and the other uh, forces that have worked upon you. But there are also negative aspects of the culture, things that are wrong with it or um, troubling about it, about your cultural context, that God wants to also work on you so that you will work against that culture or that you will help to transform that culture in some way for yourself and for others. Now, to illustrate all of this, I just want to go back to the life of Moses for a moment and just think about how, how all this, sorts of, this particular dimension worked in his, his journey. Moses, as most of you know, was a prince of Egypt. In fact, somebody should make a movie called that about him. Um, Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the... Um, president of the, of the lone superpower of his day. Uh, he was, so Moses grew up in the White House. Okay? That's, that was his basic uh, context, his cultural context. And, and he, no doubt, learned from childhood to think of himself uh, as a leader, as someone meant for leadership, because he watched leadership being exercised all day long within his family and everybody else that, that moved around him. Uh, he picked up, I'm sure, lessons about um, how to manage crises, how to distribute resources, uh, how to uh, organize projects, how to lead large numbers of people, how to administer the law, because that was a, ba- a basic job of Pharaoh's household, was administering the law, right? He got these lessons uh, from, from childhood and, 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 and youth. And... and Every one of those cultural experiences Moses had were going to prove profoundly useful, right? When one day he found himself leading a nation of a different kind than than he expected and administering a law at a higher level than he even understood. Nothing was wasted in that cultural experience that Moses had. You get that? It was all part of the design of his life. Now, there was another part of his cultural context that that is also important to understand. Moses was secretly a what? 
A Jew. Yeah. He wasn't a blood relative to, to, to Pharaoh. He was secretly a Jew, a Jew. He'd been born into a Hebrew family. He was literally nursed by a Hebrew mother. Moses was exposed to the plight of the Hebrew people under uh, the heel of the, their Egyptian slave masters. Uh, Moses encountered the persecution and the indignities that were being suffered by the Hebrew people. I mean, his mom, heck, his mom had actually sent him into that papyrus basket on the river in the first place because Pharaoh was going around slaughtering Hebrew kids, trying to keep their numbers down so they didn't overrun the slave masters. Moses saw the dark side of his culture, and that also worked on him. Right? That also had an influence in his design. It gave him this profoundly loyal feeling for his own people. It gave him a heartache for the plight of the Hebrews. It grew up in him a passion for the justice of God that these people were not getting. A, a, a holy anger, a desire to see the Jewish people set free from slavery, even though it was going to take decades before he would be thrust into the role where that could actually happen. Right? It it was nonetheless part of the design. And it was out of this blue background, this big blue backdrop of culture, that God drew Moses' life. He used both of his families, he used his time in Egypt, and then his time in the wilderness later in his story, uh, to to, to shape him in critical ways, to, to shape his heart, and his skill set in, in ways that would later advance God's purpose in stunning fashion. Now, when I step back from Moses' big story, and I think about my little story, and I just have a little story, nothing historic, but I'm still sort of jaw-dropping awestruck at, at the way God works. And some of you are probably tired of hearing about my story, but I'm going to risk that for a minute and just observe a couple things about you. I grew up in New York. People often think, you're a Californian. No, I'm actually a New Yorker. I grew up in New York. I lived all my grown-up years in a suburb called Chappaqua outside of Manhattan. I went to college in Connecticut. I went to grad school in New Jersey. I mean, I know some people in this room will not like this, but I was a Yankees fan. Okay, that's why I can't root for the White Sox. No offense, I like the Sox, but I support the Cubs because I couldn't vote against somebody that would play against my Yankees. These were my people, right? That's my background. That's part of my cultural context. Um, I grew up in a, in a politician's house. So I was exposed from a pretty young age to uh, American government and politics and governors and congressmen and all that stuff. I just, I was immersed in that particular environment. And I was pretty sure that was my calling in life. I studied political science in college. I headed up the student government. I went overseas to Northern Ireland after college in order to get, to do an internship in a political hotspot, Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I was sure I was being given all the experiences I had as a kid to train me to take up the family business. I learned how to do public speaking. I learned how to listen really carefully to people and to constituents. I learned how to organize stuff and and develop uh, coordinated responses to needs and to raise money, right? This was all part of my cultural backdrop, these experiences 
that I had. I had no idea that they were part of a different plan than me going into politics. It turns out that those lessons I had, you know, speaking, listening to people, they were going to be useful in a different job, right? Very useful in a whole nother uh, storyline. I think back to when I was an, an atheist teenager, you know, and, and I had had a mom who was really big in a neighborhood Bible study when I was a little boy. And I had a dad who had also been really big into the faith, Christian faith, long before he got swallowed up by politics. I had no idea that those things were going to turn out to be instrumental in eventually pushing me into a context where I discovered faith at 18 and my whole life turned in a totally different direction. Or back when I was a little boy, I, I remember having conversations with my grandmother, whom I loved, and, and I said, Granny, where, where did you grow up? What part of, of Connecticut or New York did you grow up? And she said, I didn't. I said, what? She said, yeah, when I was a little girl, I lived in a place called Chicago. I said, really? Where's Chicago? Oh, it's out there, you know, west. I remember her telling me about, my, uh, uh, about the fact that back in the 1800s, there had been an ancestor in our family who'd been a preacher. And he had been a famous preacher in, a city, in the city of Chicago, leading a very significant church, Fourth Presbyterian Church. And I had no idea when she told me those stories, when I kind of absorbed that context, that that would be used one day to make it conceivable to me that I might actually move to Chicago from San Diego in January. <laughs> but it was part of the plan. Those waters I was swirling in as a kid, it, they were preparing me. They were part of the, the blueprint. They were part of this design. And I can now see that all the time I spent growing up living in this business and professional leadership culture uh, of Chappaqua and, and, and those times my father took me through his political involvement into the inner city and we went to, 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 to black and Hispanic churches and, and I, I got to understand the homeless and, and work in Yonkers in the South Bronx and then in Belfast later on, that these different experiences, these two worlds that I was moving in would give me, it would come together one day and enable me to lead a church that's about business and professional leaders that has a burden for the weight that is carried by leaders, but also a passion for the poor and the needs of the world that sends us out into all the world again and again in mission. I look back now and I realize everything that happened to me was, was part of this unfolding plan. You know, I don't think anymore in terms of positive experiences and negative experiences. I just have experiences. Because I am pretty darn certain, based on what I've seen in the past, that every experience I have is something that has been used or can be used or will be used in the matrix of God's purpose over the course of the journey, if I just stay open to him, if I just keep responding to him and cooperating with him. I wonder if this is what the psalmist meant 
when he said, I praise you, God, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well, says the psalmist. I wonder if it, this is David's way of saying, I just watched you, God, again and again and again do these amazing things. I was just a little shepherd boy. I was just the youngest kid in the family, got kicked around by my older brothers. And, and, and yet you used those shepherding experiences to prepare me to shepherd a nation. God, you saw how I screwed up with Bathsheba. Use it to break my heart and make my heart more like yours. God, you used everything. Nothing was wasted in your design for me. In your, in your shepherding of me. So here's the question that I want to ask you today with the story of guys like David and Moses, the big players, and with my little story as a backdrop or an illustration. Here's the question. How's God using your cultural context to design you? Or how has he? What's the big blue backdrop of your life? And how is that being used to shape you? And going after that large question, maybe you'll find helpful these three smaller questions, these three creative questions that Reggie McNeil poses that I think could be helpful to all of us as we think about this stuff. First of all, ask yourself, what culture did I come from? What what was my cultural context? My family, my race, my gender, the places where I lived growing up, the influences I was exposed to. How have those things equipped me? You know, given me sensitivities, skills, capacities that can be used of God. And then the flip side of the coin, what was at least ostensibly negative in terms of the influence of of culture upon me, of what I had around me? I mean, how did it disfigure me in certain ways, create certain fears, anxieties, pathologies, pains, stuck places, sins that that I need to ask God's help to overcome, that God wants me to move against so that I can... Uh, be more used to him. Then secondly, what culture confronts me? Um, As I look at my home, uh, my family system, um, my church, my workplace, the wider society, um, what is it about those places that needs repairing, fixing, changing, And it's obvious that God wants me to confront those things. Maybe you find yourself disturbed by stuff that you see going on there already. That's just the stirrings of the designer in you, getting you ready to move in creative ways to address those particular concerns. And then the final question is, what new culture needs designing? Go back to those circles of home, family, workplace, school, uh, society, church, you know, what are, what are the visions that pop up for you? You know, when you think, it shouldn't be like this. It should be like this. You know, what's your vision of a flourishing household and a flourishing workplace and a flourishing society, a flourishing church? Color that in. What does that look like? Because that is, God is, is bringing up those visions in you as part of his design so that you can be a designer with him of a new kind of culture in those places. 
Think of those three questions. What culture did I come from? What culture confronts me? What new culture needs designing? I don't know how many of you have um, read much of what David Brooks writes, but I'm a big fan. I'll confess that. He's a columnist with the New York Times. He also writes incredibly thoughtful books. And his latest is called The Road to Character. And I'd get it if I were you and put it on your bookshelf and read it. Um, it is really good. Uh, it is a book for our times in a, in a, in a time when we've, thought of, we've stopped thinking so much about character and what it takes to develop one. Um, in this book, um, he tells story after story of, of remarkable people of character and how they got that way and what choices they made along the way. And one of the stories he tells is about a woman named Frances Perkins who lived back in the first part of the last century, about exactly 100 years ago. Frances Perkins went to Mount Holyoke College uh, for women in Massachusetts. She spoke with an upper-crust accent. She was a delicate lady in so many ways. And on March the 25th, March 25, 1911, she was in New York City. She was attending a tea with some other Uh, sophisticated ladies, when all of a sudden a huge sound, a ruckus, a commotion developed outside. And it was persistent, so much so that the women left the building they were in, went down, out on the street, and across into a nearby square, and what they saw simply shattered them in every way. Uh, They looked, Frances Perkins looked, at at a skyscraper. At this point, skyscrapers like 10 stories high in New York City, right? But up in the 8th, ninth, and 10th floors of this skyscraper, there was a raging fire going on. And to her utter horror, Frances Perkins watched as person after person hurled themselves out of the open windows of those upper floors to their death, some of them flaming as they fell. And she was undone by it. What Frances Perkins had stumbled upon, what is... is, is what is known as the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which up until 9-11 was one of the most unforgettable, one of the largest calamities, uh, fires that had ever been seen in New York. And what was so awful about this fire, why it became known far and wide as a significant historical event, is that there had been all kinds of warnings about this. There had been all kinds of people, protesters picketing, in fact, the conditions in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. They had pointed out how easily a fire could start in that kind of an environment, how many people were at risk, and the people that owned the company and the surrounding civic leaders and even the rank-and-file people in the streets that heard about these protests ignored them. And then it happened. And Frances Perkins was just shredded by this. She was heartbroken. She she experienced a sense of guilt. Mea culpa, mea culpa, she said, and I quote, I knew about these conditions and I did nothing. And she was driven by grief to that point where grief galvanizes into a new calling. Not into despair, but a determination that things will be different. And she left behind the prissy tees and she left behind the comforts and the plans that she'd made previously with her life and she became one of our nation's greatest crusaders for working conditions. And many of us in workplaces today have no idea what a debt we owe to her for the fact that there are now laws in place that protect us in much greater measure. 
That's what happens when someone is willing to confront the culture in which they live, the negative aspects of it, and ask, what would it look like to create a different kind of culture? You know, one of the things that I was so shaken by in reading Brooks' um, book this past summer was what he observed about the nature of, of vocation. And basically, he says, in designing their vocational path, most people today ask the personal questions. What do I like? What are my gifts? What do I want from my life? Nod your head if those are the kinds of questions you typically ask or hear other people asking. Yeah, I confess. That's how I think about it. What do I want? What do I like? What are my gifts and passions? How do I exercise what I... Brooks says, the people I studied, these people of unbelievable character that shaped history, these people asked instead the cultural questions first. They had the other questions, but they asked perseveringly the cultural questions, like, what does life want from me? What do my circumstances seem to indicate that I might be called to do? This perspective, writes Brooks, begins with an awareness that the world existed long before you, and will last long after you, and that in the brief span of your life, you have been thrown, you have been put in a basket in the river, you've been set in a place on the blueprint that has specific problems and needs. And your job, writes Brooks, is to figure certain things out. What does this environment need in order to be made whole? What is it that needs repair? What tasks are lying around waiting to be performed? And this is the part that is, was, the, was worth the money for the book. This one quotation. He said, in this scheme of things, we don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. We don't create our lives. We are summoned by life. Towards a mission, a destiny, a work for which all of the details of our lives, all of the context, have prepared us. This, my friends, is the very first simple idea that I hope you'll take with you in this series. The first big idea as we think about designing our lives. One of the primary ways that God shapes and summons people is through the context of their culture. God draws people like Moses and Francis Perkins, like me and like you, out of the blue. Please pray with me. God, it is both humbling and encouraging to pause before the wonder of your design. It is marvelous, Lord, in a world of chaos and confusion and apparent randomness to see the traces of your purposes in our stories, in the stories of others. And so as we look together at the big blue backdrop of our own cultural context, we ask you to open our eyes afresh to show us how you have already 
drawn our lives in brilliant ways toward the fulfillment of your good purposes. Show us even in this week ahead, Lord, we pray, where we might use who we are and what we have and where we've been placed to help others to glorify you because we pray this in the name of the great carpenter, Jesus. Amen.